Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52 today. And it is the fourth of the five servant songs that we've identified. And again, I'll make mention of the fact that uh, most commentators you read will identify four servant songs. Uh, we'll talk about that fifth one next week and why I think it's a servant song and why I think it's very important, especially for connecting all this to Jesus Christ. But today we'll be in Isaiah chapter 52 and into 53. And this will be familiar territory for most of us. And it is familiar because the New Testament refers to it so often, so often refers to it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to tie together some things in Isaiah with this passage, because uh, I, I did just preach on this passage back around Easter time, you might remember. And in that, we saw the importance of the atonement that was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk more about that today. But today we're going to talk about it in the context of this great book of Isaiah. So I'm going to show you a problem in the book of Isaiah, and I'm going to show you how God solves the problem. He creates a great tension there, and then he resolves the tension. And so we have a, a great opportunity to see how it is that he's arranged the book of Isaiah, what it is that he's telling us through it, and try to get the big picture today. So first thing I want to mention is this uh, central and somewhat simple fact is that Isaiah is primarily about God. No one surprised? It's primarily about God, but there's a bunch of other minor themes in it. And two themes in that work in particular that are kind of in tension to one another is the idea of sin and the idea of salvation. And by sin, of course, in the near term, Isaiah was ministering to the people of Israel. He was prophesying to them and prophesying to them primarily about their sins. And it is encouraging them to be loyal and faithful to the covenant that they had with God. And so much of the book is dedicated to indicting uh, the people of Judah and Jerusalem concerning their sins and calling them back to faithfulness to God. And then it begins to turn around and look at the other nations around them, even the nations that God would bring to judge the nation of Judah, he begins to point to them and point out their sins and point out their problems and pronounce upon them the wrath that they were due because of what they had done to Israel and to other nations. And so sin is a huge theme in the book, but another huge theme in the book is salvation. And it is a salvation of Judah and Jerusalem in the near term, where the Lord is telling them, yeah, you're, you're going to suffer under Assyria. You're going to suffer under Babylon, but at some point you're going to be even taken out of your nation by Babylon. But I'll bring you back. And that's a salvation theme that he gives to Judah. Even though you're going you're gonna to mess this up all the way to where I have to take you out of the land, I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to resettle you here, and it's going to be different. But those passages then begin to bleed over into something much more, something more than they ever experienced after their exile, something more than mere human beings existing in a nation on earth. Yes, even a nation of God could experience on this earth. He begins to speak in high and lofty language about a time that is free of sin and free of wrath and free of all those things which make the world a difficult place to live in. 
So those two things are in tension in the book of Isaiah for this very reason. How we get from point A to point B is, is largely unforeseen. How is it that we go from being these people that constantly need to be derided for their sins to these people that are enjoying an everlasting covenant with the Lord in a perfect place among other people who are like-minded with the Lord? And today we're going to see how this tension is resolved. Well, first of all, I want to bring out an example of the tension that we see here, and that's going to be best illustrated in Isaiah. And if we go back to chapter 1, and I preached on this uh, passage at the very beginning, a couple of uh, sermons about what is found here, but listen to what he says about the sin of the people of Israel. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So he begins the book with this very strong indictment that y'all aren't even as smart as animals. They know where to go home. They know where their food comes from. And the Lord indicts their people. You're not even that good. He goes on and he says this. He says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And so this is an indictment, and this is really a character indictment. He's really describing them in terms of like, this is what you are at the core. And then he's going to go on and he's going to explain the wrath that's going to come upon them as a result of their situation, because this was their covenant with God. Remember, God made a covenant with them and he says, hey, look, I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be yours, but I'm going to be your God. And when you go into this land, you will have many blessings if you follow me. You'll have many curses come upon you if you don't. Now, what do you think? And they all said, oh, yeah, we'll do that. So they made a covenant with God, and these were the terms of the covenant, and so they were acting wickedly, and this is what he says. He says, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And so their land becomes destroyed by the, the nation of Assyria. And all that's left is the city of Jerusalem or known as Zion sometimes. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard. In other words, the only thing standing by the time Assyria is done with them like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. And so this is a extreme, what the Lord pronounces upon them. And this is indicative of the sin that's pronounced upon them all through the Bible. And yet there is salvation. See, later in the chapter, he's going to encourage them to repent. 
And then beginning in the next chapter, he's going to talk about a vision of the future in which Zion, that is Jerusalem, is mightily transformed. And not just transformed for its residents or for Judah, but for the whole world. Look what it says here in Isaiah chapter 2, understanding this is just, you just read a little further down the page. And it says, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Now that, uh, that is a picture of bliss. You want to know how I know? Because I had a young family to get out the door to go to church. And it rarely sounded like this. It usually sounded like, now doggone it, I told you last night to lay your clothes out. We're going to be late to church. And how many people get to church just having finished a spat, an argument, or something like that, uh, screaming and getting the kids going, Dawn's back there raising her hand. <laughs> okay, not today, right? Okay. But, yeah, we'll talk about it later. Um, but this is these are people from all the nations. Now, remember, from an Old Testament point of view, there was one chosen people of God. That was the nation of Israel. And yet here we have this vision of the future of a Zion that's been perfected, a Jerusalem that is perfected, where people from the nations are willingly going to it for the purpose of seeking the Lord. And look at this in direct contrast to how the Bible characterizes human beings in general, saying no one seeks God, not one. All have gone astray, all go their own way. No one seeks for God. This is a vision of something utterly greater, far greater than anything they experienced after their actual physical exile. Because we know those years. Those years are recorded. We can go back in history and see what it was like in, in Judah and Jerusalem after the exile. They were constantly under threat of war. They were constantly being oppressed by other people. They enjoyed a very short period of independence and during that time they perfected their legalism and their idolatry concerning the law and so this is a time that has not happened thoroughly yet but as we will see it is happening now out of zion shall go forth the law and the word of the lord from jerusalem he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a world be without war. You know what? We really can't answer that because we've never experienced it in the history of the world. We have never experienced this. Where nation is not rising up against nation, there is not war, but a time of perfect justice and peace under God. Do you see the disconnect here? 
how can it be on the one hand that these people of Israel are utterly helpless to follow God, don't seem interested in all in following him. He uses every Hebrew word they had for sin to describe them. And yet someday there's going to be this situation in which it will not only be them, but it will be all the nations of the world willingly coming to the Lord to worship. And Isaiah lets us marinate in that. For chapter after chapter, he pronounces judgment and he gives a little hope. He pronounces judgment and he gives a little hope until finally introduces this servant. The servant's going to come and he's going to take up the role of Israel in the world. It actually calls this servant Israel but treats him as an individual that's going to be risen up from among the people. And he's going to be godly, and he's going to obey God, and he's going to accomplish all of these things. So the problem is this great tension, and the solution is what we're going to look at in this servant. And so let's take a look and get a glimpse of the solution because Isaiah actually early on in the book gives us a little glimpse of the resolve here in the servant sacrifice. Let's take a look at this. In Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah has a vision which was common to prophets to relate to them some kind of experience to relate to the audience, some kind of experience they had with God. What qualifies you to be a prophet? You know, Jeremiah puts his right up front. Ezekiel speaks of his encounters with God. Isaiah speaks of this particular encounter with God. And in it, he hints at the solution to the tension that he's going to have all the way through this book. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see this theme of salvation here is the fact that Isaiah has been brought into the very presence of God himself. He's been brought into the throne room, as it were, where these wondrous beings, these seraphim, are surrounding the Lord and singing this song about him, praising him with the, the triple holy there, holy, 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 meaning perfectly and utterly holy. But then comes the problem. Verse uh, four, uh, this continues in verse four, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. But look at verse five. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. You see the theme of sin here where Isaiah basically freaks out He's like, I shouldn't be here. I'm not worthy to enjoy the presence of the Lord because I am a sinful person. I live among sinful people. This cannot be. And there's the tension that we find through so much of the book. Here's this unworthiness to be in the presence of God, and yet here's this 
promise of being in the presence of God. How can the two be reconciled? Well, the resolve is here in verses six and seven. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then he continues to have a conversation with the Lord. But he couldn't be in his presence unless his sin were atoned for, unless his sin problem was dealt with. Isaiah was right to say, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, how can I possibly be here? I am undone, he says, which means I'm as good as dead. And the Lord comes and brings him a coal from the altar. Well, what does all that mean? Well, you go back into the, the law, the part of the Bible that we like to breeze over because it's so boring. And it's page after page of here's how you build the tabernacle. Here's how the Levites ought to dress. Here's the materials to use. And here's the offerings you're to make. And then we should zero in on those offerings because that's important. And he says, look, you can't come before me just as you are. I'm going to put my presence right there in the tabernacle, but you're going to have a process by which you come to me. And it's going to require a blood sacrifice. And it's then that blood sacrifice, that, that blood is going to be offered on the altar that's in there by the holy place. And that's what Isaiah is seeing is that a coal is taken from that altar and brought to his lips. In other words, the Lord is going to offer sacrifice and atonement that someone like Isaiah could be in the very throne room of God. See, it's one thing to be in the temple. It's one thing to, to move in and out of there. Human beings did that all the time without any kind of trouble. Now, there were a couple times there were hiccups in how they did things, especially when God started the program. But as time went on, this was just another tent, and this was a, a place where they did their rituals and things, and they offered these things, and they often lost sight of how important this was and what it represented. So it must take something more if it just takes the blood of animals to get us into the, the holy place in, in our own tabernacle to be with God, so to speak, and in his earthly place, what must it take for us to be in his heavenly place? It would have to be something greater than the blood of animals. It would have to be something greater than the incense that was burned with it. It would have to be something greater than an altar made of bronze. It had to be a heavenly altar. It had to be something far more intense. This heavenly atonement is what we're talking about and what brings us to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. So what we see here so far is that the, what we're going to learn is this the atonement that is provided by Jesus Christ is the centerpiece in God's plan to redeem Israel and all the nations. It's the centerpiece of the plan. It comes late in the book. It's revealed as something there, this atonement that he's going to make. He's going to put forth this servant that he's already had three songs about. This is the fourth. This servant is going to bring forth is an atonement, an offering, a sacrifice that can bring us near. So let's look at those right now. Chapter 52, 
And we'll look at verses 13 and following. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. So again, it's turning to the servant here. The Lord is speaking here in verse 13. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, and now he's speaking directly to the servant. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. His first three verses are kind of an introduction and overview of what follows. Now look at the rhetorical question asked, perhaps by the prophet. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, his servant was nondescript in his human form. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears are silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession the transgressors. Let's unpack that a little bit and let's just simply say uh, some things like this. So we had our example there in Isaiah chapter 2. We saw Isaiah's personal crisis and Jesus died for our sins. Look in uh, 
chapter 2, verse 15. I want to bring, bring you back there real quick. This is foreshadowed in, in like this introduction that we see here. It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. I'll get you there. Sorry about that. He shall sprinkle many nations. It says right up front, this is the word used for the sprinkling that the Lord said. He said, hey, take the blood of a sacrifice, sprinkle it on all the priests that are going to come before me and do my work. Sprinkle it on all the utensils that they're going to use and come before me. And now when I ratify the covenant with the people of Israel, take some of the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on all the people. And now the Lord says what the servant's going to do in his great wisdom, he is going to go and he's going to sprinkle many nations. And look here in verse 5 of chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It wasn't for his own. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So this made peace with God. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. In other words, what he suffered makes us right with God. He stood in our place. And look in verse 10 here. There's even a prediction of the resurrection. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So that clearly shows, okay, he is an offering for guilt. The servant himself will go and be this person whose blood pays the price for the sins of others. But then this prediction of the resurrection, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. In other words, he'll continue on. And that requires a resurrection. And then in chapter 12, he shares this resurrection. He shares this victory. He says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. These are terminologies of war. This is what we talked about. We talked about spiritual warfare over here in uh, uh, Sunday school this morning in Ephesians chapter 6. And the idea is Jesus has won a victory and the spoils of war is life he is going to share. And he's going to divide these spoils of war and his victory with others. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, bore the sins of many. Back here in verse 11, this is an important point too. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. In other words, the many that he shares us with, they will be counted as righteous as he is. Paul unpacks this in the book of Romans and he says, we can't come to God in any righteousness of ourselves. There's no number of works we could do, no work so great that we could become right with God. But Jesus, having lived a perfect and sinless life, takes all that righteousness and shares it and presents it to his people so that when we approach God, we do not approach on our own righteousness or our own merit. We approach God on the righteousness of Christ. This is how we can know that our prayers are heard. 
If we are in Christ, they are heard, and they are heard on the merits of Christ's righteousness and not our own. In verse 12, that's why it says at the end of verse 12, he makes intercession for the transgressors. He makes intercession for the transgressors. And this is interesting because it ends on this, a continuing kind of action, a thing that continues on. He offered himself and all those things, and yet at the end here, he makes intercession for the transgressors. And the New Testament encourages us and teaches us that after he ascended into heaven and set down at the right hand of the Father, he wasn't done with all his work. He's still working. He's making intercession for us because he's right there at the right hand of the Father. And as we lift up prayers, he's saying to the Father, yeah, he's one of mine, my righteousness, count that. That prayer is my prayer. That person is me with regard to the court of heaven. And so this is very important for us to understand. And then we're given some interesting New Testament interpretations of these things. Uh, first of all, in uh, Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 it says in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross making peace by the blood of the cross and so in colossians we see he gives believers peace and reconciliation with god in the next chapter which is a colossians is a very good letter to study to understand what this did for us, what the sacrifice of Christ did. Look in verses 13 and 14. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. In other words, before Christ, we were dead. So many people think every, every human being is neutral and some, you know, someday they're going to die and then whether or not they're raised again will depend upon whether they have faith in Christ. No, we're all actually dead already until Christ intervenes in our life and then we are made alive together with him because of this forgiveness of sins. He forgives the sins, he cancels the debt. And look in verse 15 here, and we talked about this in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is, in Christ, those spiritual authorities out there in the spiritual realm that are working against God, that have rebelled to God, become irrelevant to us in a legal kind of sense. They have nothing over us anymore. We've been transferred into the kingdom of God. We are no longer in their earthly kingdoms. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, he says this about the church. He says, he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who made us both one, that is Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what Jesus did on the cross brings together a new body of people, a new nation, it's called in other places, 
of both Jews and Gentiles, unified together, unified to Christ. So what the Bible clearly presents to us here is, is all these things. I want to get them all out here for you. Presents to us these various things here. And it presents, therefore, his cross as atonement. And atonement's one of those very rare words in English in which the various pieces of the word actually fit together to tell us what the word means. And, it, and it's literally from the words at one meant. Meant is the state of something. And atonement is at one. It's the state of being at one with God. This is what the atonement means. By Jesus paying the price for our sins, this atonement that he gives is the beginning of all the blessings of knowing God. This is salvation. This is what Jesus called eternal life. It is union with God forever. And many other things, renewing of the mind, changing of the heart, all these things are part of it. Trying to find my cursor here. The, the blessings of peace, the blessings of contentment, the redemption from our slavery to sin and escape from that hell to which we would go without the salvation that atonement brings. So here is Isaiah's great resolve between the present and the future, between sin and salvation. It's atonement. It's the atonement of Jesus Christ that allows us to be in the very presence of God himself, to be a servant of his own creation and his own liking, to be a recipient of grace that no longer needs to fear. We no longer need to lament our situation, but we need only to look to Jesus, as the book of Hebrews calls the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, that is for you, the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So we no longer need to look to ourselves or to ritual or to vain promises of the world. We look to the author and finisher of our faith who endured the cross, who turns ashes into beauty, failures into faith, guilt into hope. Our silly and futile deeds that we do to try to please God into eternal works that truly are pleasing to God. He does all these things. The transformation in the atonement is complete. And now we have to ask the question, what does this really mean to us? And what stands in the middle between our pervasive sin and the glorious restoration of Eden is the servant Jesus Christ. Let me say that again so we get it. What stands in the middle between our pervasive sinfulness and the glorious restoration of Eden, which is what we're seeing there in the New Jerusalem, is the servant, Jesus Christ. It's not, a base, it's not based upon our efforts, not based upon a change of mind or 
or even a change of heart. It's based upon the servant's work, Jesus Christ. And our efforts are there. A change of mind occurs. And indeed, a stony, cold, dead heart is made alive again in Christ. But all those things flow from what he did for us on the cross. This is why it is Jesus who's ultimately worshipped in heaven. Take a look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. If you ever have a doubt of what this is all about, you can skip to the end of the book. And you can go to the book of Revelation. You can say, what's happening up there in heaven? What is the end result of all these things? And, and what is the, the theology that really carries us through? And look what it is here in heaven. They sang a new song for the lamb that was slain, that is for Jesus Christ. It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. That's a scroll of judgment upon the earth. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. John's given this vision in heaven, much like Isaiah was. And he says, then I looked and I heard around the throne and and a living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Do you see the implication here? That what Jesus did, thousands upon thousands, and it is It is not a technical phrase denoting a particular number. John's phrase he uses there, where it's translated sometimes as myriads of myriads, is a way of saying more than I could ever possibly count. Angels do nothing but worship him and sing praises to him all the time. Is this Christ not worth our attention? Is this Christ, the one that's high and lifted up, the one who takes the centerpiece of heaven, that the the one seated on the throne, the Father is there, but it's the Christ who's the focus of these things and the focus of the song and everything else, and he seems to be the center of all this, and everybody's worshiping him in heaven, and we struggle to give him an hour a week. We struggle to let him have first place in our desires and our hearts. We struggle to move over some of the simple things of life to make room. And it is a struggle. But how worthy is he? Now the goal in this particular part is not to give us guilt, for guilt is a hindrance. Guilt is an attack of the evil one, for if you are in Christ, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that God raised him from the dead, then you are seated with him in the heavenly places. And guilt is not appropriate for you, but faith in Christ 
and hope in him. For we stand not upon our devotion to him, but upon his devotion to us. So let us try ever the more in his power and his strength to worship him rightly as he so deserves. See, this glimpse into heaven is why the gospel excludes boasting. It's because it's based upon a servant's work sufficient to save a multitude of believers. So what we ought to do is resurrect our faith in the power of Christ to further trust in him not in our own efforts, not in our adherence to particular principles, not in our adherence to particular strategies for, for the kingdom work, not even in doctrinal purity, but in the one who laid his life down and took it up again. All those other things are important, but the focus has got to be Christ. His salvation is a free gift to all who will believe. And the foundation of our salvation is the sacrifice of, of this perfect servant, Jesus Christ. And the servant's sacrifice is the very beginning of our service to God. Here's a scripture I want to leave us with today. I want to connect Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous makes many to be considered righteous. And guess what happens to people that from a heavenly perspective are considered righteous? They begin, bit by bit, to act righteously. Do you see that? God is not having us build up righteousness to earn our place in heaven. God is granting us a heaven that we can be righteous. And look what it says here in 2 Corinthians 5.15 as Paul reflects upon the gospel and this ministry of reconciliation that we have. He says, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In the sacrifice of Christ is everything we need to move forward in him and further claim the victory, to dash out on this battlefield in a war that has been won but requires some cleaning up. He says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Father God, we pray this day that you will put these things in our heart in such a way they are so big, Lord, they don't fit. We ask you for a bigger cup. We ask you then to fill that cup. And we ask you to fill it to overflowing. Lord, I pray that you'll grant us understanding of these deep truths. That you'll renew in us again this love of Christ who died for our sake and was risen to show forth his perfect righteousness. Let us know this day our place with him. We are not found in him, Lord. I pray that you would reveal it and reveal it strongly, that you would bring conviction of sin, that there would be genuine repentance. Grant us the faith to repent and to take our place with you. 
Lord, I pray that you'll grant us all faith to understand these truths and to act upon them accordingly. And Lord, we praise you this day. Let us go from this place with an attitude and a spirit of worship for the lamb who was slain, for the one who laid down his life, that we can yet live. Lord, we praise you for all the work of your wise servant, Jesus Christ. We thank you for presenting it to us again and again in your word. And I pray, Lord, each time we hear it, that we are drawn closer to you, closer indeed. We thank you, Lord, for your ministry through Jesus Christ and your worship among the saints in Jesus' name. Amen.